Welcome to Horror Origins episode 10. We're going to be taking a look at the first story to feature a robot uprising. That's right, this episode is dedicated to RUR, known as Rossum's Universal Robots. And over the next 10 minutes or so, we're going to be learning about the author that wrote it, the story itself, and the legacy it's had since its inception. It's always fun looking to the future through the lens of the past. And this story certainly does not disappoint. It's supposed to take place in the year 2000, after all. So fire up your servos and juice up that positronic brain, and let's get going. Okay, so let's begin, like we always do, and learn a little bit about the author uh, who created this first. Well, his name was Carl Kapek. He's a writer of all sorts during the early part of the 20th century, mostly remembered today for this piece and a novel he wrote titled War with the Newts. He was a socially active person, um, and he was so from a very young age. He was born into privilege, uh, being the son of a doctor, and began his writing career as a journalist in the Czech Republic. And he quickly, as a journalist, became part of the upper echelon in the nascent Czechoslovak state, attending what was called the Friday Men Garden Parties, which included, notably, the, the first president and the first foreign secretary of the Czech Republic. It was at this point in his life that he wrote um, the play that we're going to be taking a look at today, R.U.R., and he was even nominated for the Nobel Prize in literature seven times, but he never won. He seems to be pretty well remembered and beloved in and around the Czech Republic, and has several literary awards named after him, including the Czech's Pen Club's Carol, sorry, Carl Kapek Prize. At the end of his life, it was pretty interesting too, actually. Uh, in, in 1938, Nazi Germany was on the verge of invading Czechoslovakia. And as a high-profile person, he was urged to seek exile in England. He absolutely refused. Karl was very much a patriotic uh, man, and the Gestapo even uh, listed him as public enemy number two for the country. And he still refused to leave, but he was a heavy smoker. And when he caught the common cold, he met his end just before the war began, and just before Germany invaded. The Nazis had no idea that he had died, and came looking for him, and when they did invade, and they found that, of course, he was dead. They interrogated his wife, and they arrested his brother, uh, who eventually died later in a concentration camp. Truly, it was a, a crazy, brutal time to be alive. But, I digress. We're here to talk about robot uprising, not uh, crazy Nazis. So let's dive into this story, Rossum's Universal Robots. So, this story is monumental in a lot of ways, and its probably most famous factoid is that it was the first to use the word robot, and it was this, the sort of the originating point for the word robot in the English language. It replaced older words like automaton and android. The word in its original language translates to forced labor, and uh, it's, a, it's a great term for synthetic life form, and it sets up the story for its ultimate conclusion. The story begins in an island factory where the robots are made. These 
original interpretations of robots are pretty interesting too because conceptually they're more like clones. They're beings assembled out of organic matter. There are descriptions of kneading troughs of robot skin, great vats of livers and brains, and a whole floor for producing bones. Nerve fibers, arteries, intestines are spun on factory bobbins. The whole thing uh, is, it sort of makes the point that robots themselves are assembled, not grown. Uh, like we might think in modern day stories with a similar organic craft. They're, they're wholly biological entities. Which is interesting to me because in, in the legacy of this story, like many incarnations of robots since then, even the word robot itself nowadays conjures up a very mechanical, non-human type thing. It doesn't even necessarily mean sentient thing. It just is sort of like a like there are plenty of factory robots nowadays. So the fact that it started out in its original inception as being a very living, organic concept for a created life, and then it completely lost that meaning over time, I think is very interesting. All right, so let's get back to the story. We find Helena, the daughter of a major industrial power, has arrived on the island, and she's meeting with a man named, man named Domin, who is the general manager of the RUR. The first act unfolds with Domin's explanation of how the factory was founded and the history of the island. He tells Helena that a man named Rossum came to the island studying marine biology and discovered a substance that behaved just like protoplasm. Now, I don't really know what the understanding of protoplasm was at the time in the 1920s, um, but we'll roll with it. It's basically a substance that you can craft living organisms or living things out of. Rossum is amazed at the power of the substance, and at first he tries to create a dog, and then he creates a man. And here he has found a substance that renders God unnecessary. Because he himself can create these things. Later on, we, we learn that Rossum's son, who is also amazed at what his father has discovered, has come to the island. But unlike his father, he sees the substance as an opportunity to get rich. The young Rossum is eventually get, sort of gets the upper hand and locks his uncle away, um, and in his absence is able to build the factory that uh, our main characters are discussing things in at the moment. It's been a long time since the events in the past, and here in the story's present, robots are cheap and available all over the world. They are, uh, they are, they are a manufacturing necessity, and um, because they allow products to be made at uh, what is what is determined to be a fifth of the previous cost, which just seems like a weird flippant fraction to throw in there, but that but they do. Helena then meets a host of other workers at the factory, and reveals to them her true purpose for coming. She is in fact um, not just an interested party of some powerful man, but a member of the League of Humanity, a human rights organization that wishes to free the robots. Her group thinks that the robots still have souls and deserve to be paid for their time. But the workers laugh and believe that robots are not any different from any other appliance. They're like a refrigerator. You wouldn't pay your refrigerator. 
we find here too that over the course of her time on the island, touring things and talking to Doman, that Doman has found himself to be falling deeply in love with Helena. And uh, at the end of Act One, he confesses his love to her. It's sort of thrown in at the end of the of the scene. I mean, as you would watch the performance, you would have seen them sort of fa- falling in love, being attracted to one another, and then it's professed at the end. It doesn't seem relevant at, at the beginning, but at the end it does sort of form sort of a moral bow on, on to the story. Act two then begins. It's ten years later, and Helena is discussing the course of events that have happened over the past decade. We learn that there's been a steep decline of human births. Now, this is not explained. I don't know how the author wants us to believe that that's the case. Are humans now just getting it on with robots and it's not producing any babies? Or is it just that things have just gotten so easy with the robots doing all the work that human beings have lost their drive to reproduce? In both cases, I I don't see it. Um, But nevertheless, that's the fact that we're given at the beginning of of Act 2. Doman then arrives, and he and Helena, he and Helena, reminisce about the days that they met and, and discuss, further discuss human history. And they talk about the new robotic economy. In the next scene, we see Helena meeting Dr. Gall's new robot experiment named Primus, Dr. Gall being the new head researcher for Rossum's factory. And Primus, I'll just say, is a pretty badass name for a robot. I'm just going to leave that there. Primus also talks about his new robot, robotus, uh, a robotess, a female robot construct, which he has named awkwardly Robot Helena, because apparently I guess he's got a thing for her too, and thought that that would be not creepy. Both, <laughs> um, both robots in his new pe- prototypes um, possess advancements in the process. Now, and I think rightly so, is horrified. (laughs) And she um, sneaks uh, into the highly guarded rooms within the RUR later on that day. And she finds the secret formula for creating robots, and she burns it. Because she wants to stop this madness, this enslavement of robots, and this weird duplication that's going on with these new prototypes. We also have to make the leap that the secret formula for creating robots is kept in like one book on this one piece, these one set of papers. And once she burns that, there is no other record on how to make robots. Which is another thing that I sort of sticks in my craw that an entire factory that is producing robots for the entire world only has the formula in one particular book. But Anyway, so it's burned. It's gone. Robots cannot be created with the formula anymore. And as she burns the document, we learn that there is a worldwide revolt of robots that has sort of started to happen. And from the sounds uh, uh, and from the reports coming in, robots that have drastically now outnumbered humanity have, uh, have risen up and are just killing people and taking over everything. And... Um, the sounds of the revolt have even reached the island itself. And that's the cliffhanger 
at the end of Act 2. That's the, the, the climax here. Begin Act 3. There's a great siege of the RUR factory, the, the genesis, the birthplace of all the robots. The characters within discuss how they could have made the robots um, differently. They could have uh, made them less equipped to organize, um, somehow limiting their ability to communicate with one another, for instance. But in the end, that, that's too little too late. Some of the people in the factory try to negotiate a deal with the robots, but are killed in the process. Helena confesses burning the formula, and they dwell in their last moments on the fact that both the human race and the robotic one has met an end, because without that formula, the robots can't make any more robots either. Others in the factory simply wait out their inevitable doom, and indeed doom does come. The robots break in and slay everyone they find, except for one man. This man is named Alquist, and Alquist is the company's chief engineer. He's sort of been in the background the whole time. She met him at the beginning, but he didn't play much of a role. They Robots spare Alquist because they see him as someone who works with his hands like a robot. He's not part of this elite human upper crust that just doesn't just gets pampered and taken care of. He actually does stuff with his hands and they respect that. It also is a leap here that he's the only human in the world who works with his hands or is perceived to work with his hands because they make it a point coming up that every human is dead except for Alquist. Which is a lot of, which is a leap that I also struggle to make. When I read this story, I can't help but perceive the parallel with the, the, the communist revolutions that were happening and were still to come. Um, you know, the lower abused working classes rising up against those that held or were perceived to hold all of the power. There are definitely clear similarities to the Ford assembly line and to the horrors that were delivered into the world via the First World War. So all of these themes uh, can be seen in this neat little sci-fi package. Now, here we have an epilogue. Another period of time has passed, and only Alquist remains. He has begged the robots to scour the Earth for more human beings, and they tell him that they have, but that none have turned up that the eradication of the human race has really been complete except for him. It's been a total genocide. In turn, the robots then plead with him to figure out the formula once more um, for, for building robots, the one that Helena had burned before. They, they beg and plead with him. They go so far as to even allow him to kill and dissect living robots in order to get the data necessary to figure out the formula. But sadly, even though they're willing to make that drastic sacrifice, Alquist is only an engineer. He's not a chemist. And so try though he might, he cannot figure out the formula. We then enter, and then, and then come on, comes onto the stage, Robot Helena and Primus. Now, the most advanced, fully featured robots that were ever devised. They seem to have developed a love for one another. And Alquist plays a hunch 
and in turn threatens to dissect Primus and then threatens to dissect Helena or robot Helena. And observing that each one in turn pleads to sacrifice themselves to spare the other, he sees this as an act of true altruism. He sees that this love and altruistic nature in both of them is really the future. They are the new Adam and Eve, and he gives his blessings and charge to the world over to them. Now, I don't know what fully featured means, but I'm guessing that that really means that they have reproductive organs that they then can create more robots biologically and that, that the robot race is not doomed. That's not expressly said. That's just what I kind of read into that statement and that, that's what I get out of the end of the play. Now, the legacy of this story is kind of interesting. It was well-received. It, it garnered a, a rich crop of positive sound bites uh, or text bites, as the case may be, when it was um, first produced. It was praised as a thought-provoking thriller that possessed exorbitant wit and cleverness. Far after, the sci-fi heavyweight Isaac Asimov proved to be sort of the, the main negative voice for this play stating, quote, Capex play is, in my own opinion, a terribly bad one, but it is immortal for that one word. It contributed the word robot not only to English, but through English to all languages in which science fiction is now written, end quote. So that's pretty scathing. But, you know, I have to say that Asimov's Laws of Robotics, which is something that he certainly is remembered for producing, owes tremendously to the idea of the robot uprising. So for him to say that Capex's play is garbage except for one word is really to miss the point of the concept of his play in its entirety. So I, I kind of have to ding Asimov for his, his sort of poke at Capex. He sort of missed the point, I think. From Star Trek to Doctor Who to The Outer Limits to Batman, the animated series, references to the RUR and Dr. Rossum um, are everywhere. Uh, and now that you've listened to this podcast, I'm sure that you'll start seeing it pop up all over the place. And conceptually, the killer robot, is, of course, is alive and well, with all sorts of books and popular television programs. I know that every time I see an article um, lauding the accomplishments in AI, I feel like we're all a bit closer to that you know, the concept becoming a reality, uh, which is always kind of uh, fun and scary. It's truly an exciting time to be alive, but so it must have felt in the 1920s when this story was written. The ideas of revolt and the, the, the world being on the brink and technology all sort of fusing together. So let's all appreciate this first in horror literature, The Killer Robot. If you enjoy this podcast and learning about the strange works of horror that have brought us to where we are today, I implore you to take a moment and write a review for the show. It'll help more people find out about it, and the more people we can get interested in this stuff, the better. And if you appreciate podcasts that are advertisement-free and want to say thanks, or make a recommendation for the show, feel free to email me at author at 
matthewtansic.com or click on the contact button on matthewtansic.com. Both of those links will be included in the show notes. And lastly, if you want to stay up to speed on this or any of my other creative projects, I'm on Twitter. Uh, please feel free to follow me at tans444. That's T. That's uh, T A N Z four four four. Reach out. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time. Thanks for joining me. Mm-hmm.